Hi, welcome to Classical Chats. I'm Tiffany. I'm so excited today for this episode with Jolt Wagner. He is just a sweet person, and I'm very lucky that I actually, we've never met in person, but we got connected via Instagram because he had seen my performance of uh, at Gilmore Festival. And then I was invited to his Instagram Q&A. And uh, now he has agreed to come on as a guest on Classical Chats, which I'm very excited about because he is not only a wonderful musician, but also he is the host of such a prestigious series called Living the Classical Life. And some of you actually, well, some of my audience, so probably some of you have heard of the series before. He has had guests like Emmanuel Axe, Joshua Bell, and so many others that I suddenly cannot remember, but he is just amazing. So I'm very excited to talk to him and hope you enjoy this episode. Hello. <laughs> we you. talked so long, I feel like I, I know, kind of like know you a bit, but it's, uh, <laughs> I know we're all warmed up and I, yeah, it's so nice to have you on my chat after being a guest on your uh, series. Uh, well, Tiffany, how are you? you? Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's great to see you again. It's it's wonderful to follow all of your your projects, and you know I'm I'm honored to be on after I had you on my very informal Instagram live chat, which is a far more modest technical production. Uh, I mean, at all, <laughs> <laughs> this is just over Zoom, so you know we're just still behind a screen. Um, but yeah, you have such a incredible version of i mean not to compare it at all but what i try to do with classical chats is to have so many different guests and have interesting conversations with them just because they love classical music whereas you have the prestigious version or the more prestigious guest list and it's been amazing to see who you have had on your um living the classical life and yeah i'm excited to talk to you about all of that but if it's okay, from well, the very it's, beginning. It's it's funny that you should mention it that way because people these days, so Living the Classical Life is now in its 10th year of filming. I, I can't believe it's already been 10 years. And 10 years? 10 years. What was I doing and 10 years ago? I don't even know what I was doing 10 years ago, but I, I certainly didn't have any clue of what I was doing. And, and there was certainly no idea that there was going to be, let's make a show and I'm the host of it. No, it was actually, a totally accidental project but accidental wait but before you go into it though yeah. let me start from the very beginning just so yeah. we have a chronological order of your journey how did you begin your journey with classical music and then eventually classical life but from the very yeah. beginning yeah so right from the very beginning well the the interesting detail here is that i started very late I started piano when i was almost nine which if you think of the development of a lot of the artists um, especially the musicians that I've spoken to, um, I think they've had the advantage of starting earlier. Um, I kind of wonder mm. how it would have been had I started at four or five, if mm. maybe some of the, the neuropathways would have made the right connections, if certain things would have been physically easier for me at the piano. I don't know. But what I do like to say is that the fact that I started when I was almost nine, I had some awareness of what I was getting into. And... Mm -hmm. And why? I mean, I didn't, it, it, it was my idea, kind of. That ah. I was to, yeah, it was my idea. No one pushed me into it. In fact, it was, it was Christmas one year. And my older brother said to me and my younger brother, he said, you know, should we tell Santa to let's pull our gifts together? And can we ask for a keyboard? And I said, oh, yeah, that, that sounds cool. Because my brother <laughs> and it, we, we just wanted to do what Big Brother was saying. So we wanted the keyboard and, and we got the keyboard. It wasn't even a full size keyboard and it arrived and I just was so fascinated by it and so my brother showed me a little something about how to read music and I just kept on tinkering with it it didn't really catch on with them but um at a certain point I started taking lessons at the local university so my older brother was taking flute lessons and we would wait in the the, the grand hall of the the local music school and mm. the organ students would be practicing there. I said, whoa, the organ, wow, I want to do that. Said, well, you have to start on keyboard, so you have to start on piano. And ah, so, so you wanted to pursue organ. I was tricked into piano. 
<laughs> you were tricked. Oh, I but did you come from a musical family, or you were well, just tinkering? You know, in a way, yes. I mean, I would say that it was primarily an appreciation of of, of music. My mm. my father's side, um, my father's mother was a piano teacher, and she studied at the Liszt Academy. And her piano teacher was Ernst von Dohnanyi. So they were all in the building at the same time that Bartok was there, which oh, is wow. kind of a mind blowing thing. But she as I do, had many interests. And so she wanted to ski, she wanted to play tennis, she was a, a mom and and uh, and all that kind of thing. So she didn't quite find the focus, I, I think, that it takes to, to become a concert pianist. Her hand was also really small. So maybe that should be a lesson for me to not do too many things because I, I was just telling you earlier that I wear perhaps too many hats as a musician. I manage a concert series in Cleveland. Um, you know, I have the film series and I'm, I'm pretending to be a pianist and, and um, I'm also helping out <laughs> Piano Fest in the Hamptons, which is a wonderful series I've been involved in, in for, for many years. But, but that's what makes you an interesting person and also shows that you're multi-talented. Or just crazy. Um, you know, I think I, I, admire, I admire people who can really sit down on a daily basis and for weeks at a time do nothing but kind of the same practice routine each day where they feel themselves incrementally getting better each day. Everything for me seems like a much more improvised uh, kind of balancing act. I mean, I do work hard, but it's, it's I'm, I, I would say free spirited at best. I mean, that's maybe mm. giving myself too much credit, but going back to your, going back to your original question, which was at what point did it catch on for me? So I found, after six months of, of taking piano lessons with one of the, I think it was one of the doctoral students at the university, I switched over to a, a piano teacher here in Champaign-Urbana where I'm uh, speaking to you from right now. His name is Roger Shields and he was a private pupil of Sulima Stravinsky, uh, son of Igor. And so this was a tremendous uh, person in my life kind of another father figure, had many interests, gardening, cooking, and it is this beautiful house full of French antiques, all that kind of thing. Uh, when Alfred Brendel um, retired from Vox, from that recording contract, Roger Shields took his place and made a lot of recordings of American piano music. So anyway, that's all just to say that I had a wonderful piano teacher who really pushed me. And then mm -hmm. when I was a couple of years later, when I was 12, my father started taking me up uh, to Chicago, which is two hours north of here. And we started hearing um, in Orchestra Hall, the great recital series there. And so I heard pianists like Pogorelich, Schiff, Zimmerman, um, mm. and Brendel. So it was during Brendel's recital. It was a recital of, it was four or five Beethoven sonatas. I wish I could find that program. But he ended with the Opus 10, number three, the D major sonata, uh, number seven for anyone who's tuned in and wants the number. And that sonata ends with kind of a light flourish. It doesn't even really seem like an ending. It's just kind of, there's an arpeggio that goes down. And then it, I remember Brendel just lifted his hands off the keyboard after that. And it was such a light, humorous gesture that people in the audience started giggling. And that was the end of the recital. And I thought, if there's room for laughter in the concert, oh, I said, this is awesome. Imagine the possibilities for the, all the other human experiences there are. So after I heard him and then Pogorelich at that age, I mean, the young Pogorelich, I, my imagination was lit on fire. Then Zimmerman mm. and his, his exceptional craftsmanship and, and perfectionism, but also that narrative drama Anyway, you can see that I'm getting really nerdily excited about all of this. But that's what I love about um, how passionate people can be about classical music. That's great. Keep talking. So, <laughs> I think that I think that was when I decided that I wanted to be a pianist. Somewhere mm. in Chicago. I, I like to say it was Brendel, but I think it could have been sort of a, a combination of all of those taken together that I really uh, was excited in a way that few other things excited me at that point, although I was really into airplanes, I wanted to be a pilot because of that feeling, oh. <laughs> that feeling of, of soaring. But actually, I don't think this is entirely random because for me, this, this feeling of rising above, um, of soaring, I get that from music too, especially from mm. the, the repertoire that I'm drawn to. Um, I've tended to be, um, how would I put this? 
you know how sometimes when we're choosing repertoire to play at the piano, it's like we say, what, what should I play? You know, or I really like this thing. I really like that thing. Um, sometimes I feel like not, not in an immodest way, but I feel like the, the piece chooses me because I listen to it and I'm so crazy in love with it, so excited and I can't sleep because of it. And I say, why am I having this response? Well, I have to learn it. So that's been pretty much my res my response to a lot of pieces. And with the mm. extreme examples, I just say, okay, it's time to learn it. Yeah, I've definitely had that because just now I filmed a video explaining my choice of repertoire when I was a kid. And as a kid, <laughs> what kind of thought process did I have? I like it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> you know, I hear something, I like it, I play it. Simple as that. So I think even growing up until now, sometimes the pieces just kind of are so magnetic somehow to my attention or to my ears. And it's just exactly as you say, you just will play it. You have to learn it because it's just growing on you so much and also making me not sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the project the the trajectory of, of all of us as performers, why do we develop into a certain repertoire? Um, some people specialize in, in a certain kind of music. And I think it's it's just something resonates with us for a particular reason. I can't explain why I'm just so in love with Russian music, for example. Um, mm. But I am. It's just so it's so effusive in its desire to it's kind of an outpouring of you know, I think I think of the the dreamers in music. I'm thinking of of Schumann. I was just listening to your your excerpt. You 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 even put a, a beautiful caption. Um, this was from the Davidsbundler. It was one of the Eusebius kind of the dreaming thing where you you picture someone who's totally drunk with the beauty of life. Those are the types of pieces I was drawn to. So I had this this kind of love of Schumann all my life. I had this love of Scriabin. Mm. Um, Tchaikovsky, these really, really intensely heartfelt outpouring. So you're romantic, essentially, in in life. I mean, it seems like, as you mentioned, how you're improvising and not really, um, yeah, you kind of attribute a lot of that to just kind of going with the flow or something like that, it seems. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe, maybe that's giving me too much of a compliment. I mean, I tend to idealize things in life. I tend to seek out- We're so similar. <laughs> I, I tend to seek out beauty and, and not see things for actually what they are. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm in this little fantasy bubble, but- That's I'm nice. Well, you're in a much more idealistic. I've been told that I've, I'm an idealist, but I definitely know that I am a very romantic in the sense of just kind of dreaming, daydreaming, floating in, things and in all the tasks that I'm supposed to be doing and not really so much on the nitty-gritty things whether it is how I approach practicing a piece or just um, in general so well it's a fascinating conversation because um, I've been thinking a lot about what happens for us as as performers or as just the artist in the way we live our lives um, if we're performing on stage to an audience what we feel, how, how much of that is being transmitted to the audience and, and their relationship to what's mm. going on? Are they perceiving us? Are they perceiving primarily the music? I, I would hope so. Um, I recently had a Zoom lesson with a, a pianist I've admired intensely, Maria Joao Pires. Um, I hope mm -hmm. I said her name correctly. Pires, perhaps. And I played the Schubert uh, B-flat sonata for her. And and she she said, okay, this, this, and this. Um, Joel, I, I want you to consider if there's something that we want to communicate, an emotion that the music contains or we feel that we resonate with, how much of that do we keep for ourselves and how much of that do we give away? Her point being that um, I don't always have to give all of it away mm. all at once, um, as is my tendency to do. Um, I guess the, the overarching question there is, um, how do we pace ourselves in our lives even as, as performers, yeah. right? Not, that's a very interesting question. And I heard her performance in Carnegie Hall, I believe. And she's definitely oh, a very amazing uh, musician. Yeah. How, how did you even just uh, get to have a lesson with her? Um, you know, as far as I know, anyone can sort of apply to do this. She started advertising. She, she has this wonderful music center in Portugal where she lives. And mm. it's a musical kind of commune, I think, really. Um, she's practicing there with a whole bunch of other musicians. I think it's also partly a farm. It looks like a beautiful setting that you could have 
I don't know, it kind of looked like Tuscany or something. But wow. um, I was having this this lesson with her. I saw it advertised on Instagram, I believe. Uh, you know, buy, <laughs> buy a lesson with Maria Schwab-Pierce. And, and you have to say a little something about yourself um, and, and the piece and why you want to have a lesson with her, just so that it's not just anyone. But um, it was a truly, truly special experience because this was music that I thought I had been building a relationship with all my life. Mm -hmm. But when she demonstrated, and she demonstrated a lot, you could almost see visually she was drawing shapes in three-dimensional form through sound. It was, I was absolutely mesmerized. Hmm. Um, That's fascinating. But going back to uh, the transition, so you heard these amazing concerts by really kind of life-changing musicians for you and inspirations for you. At what point did you decide that you're going to pursue, I think you went to conservatory, no? Yes. Yeah. So, so I, <laughs> you went to, is it Cleveland Juilliard? I should remember. Yes. I, I went to, recently I visited Juilliard so much because I'm in New York a lot for the, the film series that some people think I went there, but actually I attended <laughs> Cleveland Institute of Music uh, where I, I went there to study with Sergei Babayan, who at that time uh, was, was a really young man. And, uh, <laughs> tremendous performer on the level that we know him today, but he really had very few concerts at that point. So he had a lot of time to teach and it was a small studio. Mm. Um, but going back a little bit, um, I, I started, I'm, I'm not sure that there was beyond being swept up by those, those Chicago performances. I'm not sure that there was really an option of anything else. I mean, I knew that I really wanted to practice a lot during the daytime and any mm -hmm. standard schooling, uh, any school system here would have me there the whole day and then then a lot of homework. Um, I, I knew that that would be too much for me. So I went to the Walnut Hill School for the performing arts in, in outside of Boston. So it was tied in with the New England Conservatory. I was there for mm -hmm. three years, then went to, to Cleveland and I've been living there ever since. Mm -hmm. So I, I counted myself very lucky that Actually, it was my mom who found out about Sergei Babayan. And uh, at, at that time, I really didn't know who he was. And I played for him. And and then I took more lessons with him in a summer festival in, in France. And and at that point, I just knew that this is such an, an exceptionally creative man and fantastic human being. And I really just wanted to study with him. I didn't know where that would lead. I didn't necessarily think that I had it in me to be a professional concert pianist because I always had such a, a difficult time with the stage. I would get really nervous and it was, a, you know, kind of a long- I remember. Yeah. You're asking time. me about stage fright. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a lifelong struggle and, and it, it goes in waves and, and sometimes I'm totally in love with stage and I really, really love it. And I'm trying to identify why it is that there are certain times when it feels more in the flow and other times it feels like some existential uh, struggle. I don't know. It's like, does, does, does it ever, we've spoken about this before, but has it ever felt like it's gone in waves? Like, does it always stay the same for you, your comfort level with stage? Well, I think I don't have enough experience to answer that because obviously you've performed a lot more and I was just starting my concert career before the pandemic uh, stopped right. everything and delayed everything. So from the, I don't know how many concerts I've played in my life, but from my limited experience, I think it's a lot just psychological. Yeah. I, I mean, I mentioned that I really had a lot of life-changing experiences, just experiencing the concerts, but also interacting with artists during the Dresden Music Festival. But being able to walk off stage, on and off stage, as the same person talking to uh, Yo-Yo Ma, for example, or um, some other artist just having a chat or having a giggle right before walking on stage and playing Scarlatti or Clara Schumann, I think that made me feel so much more natural because it wasn't like, okay, I have to strip away my entire life and become a different person. And I have yeah. all these things that I have to try to be. I'm just the same person walking on stage, except I put the pressure of playing music to the best that I can at that moment. And so, yes, sometimes I get a little bit more nervous here and there, but I always try to remind myself that the music is why I'm here. 
and I shouldn't let my own nerves get in the way of the existence of beautiful music in time. So now that I'm saying it out loud, it would almost seem like selfish if I let myself interrupt that and yeah, get in the way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, I've, I've constantly been trying to reevaluate the different roots of where nervousness might come from. So recently, um, the the latest, at the time that we're speaking, the latest episode of, of Living the Classical Life that was released was a conversation I had with Marc-Andre Hamelin, who mm-hmm. I asked him about different aspects of finding our best zone on stage. And at that point, he confessed that he had never felt stage fright in his life. And as I posted this on YouTube, or the show posted it, I was reading some of the comments and one person said, you know, the host of of this show fails to realize that the the artists of this level are so much on a higher level than everyone else and they're focused on the music and so they're not concerned with how they look. Well, Mm. you know, yes and no, but I'll give you an example. One of the most obviously terrific performers I've ever had the privilege of being in the vicinity of was Martha Argerich. And I knew you were going to mention her. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had to do that, that bit of name dropping just because I'm so mesmerized by her. And I, I had the chance to spend two summers kind of behind the scenes with her. And she, I've never seen anyone get more nervous about uh, being on stage. And, and she has absolutely the highest commitment to the music and to serving the purpose to let that live and communicate it with the audience. I don't think that gave her immunity from uh, questions of perception of how how people were, were hearing and seeing her. And I think even removed from that level, finding your ideal zone and the concentration, for me, it's, it's not an entirely 100% consistent thing. And so, the nerves, uh, I, I'm not always, you know, I, it's rarely about what I think people think of me. It's being up there and feeling like I want to reach my personal best. And, uh, yes, and exactly. That I get there yeah. and, and serving the music. Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't think it's about losing face or something like that. I mean, it could be for some, but I think, yeah, I think it's out of respect for the music and the high regard exactly. for music. And what's uh, interesting, not only just from talking to you right now, but also living the classical life is that it shows that no matter how high up you are in the world of performance of classical music, you still are human. And so you're not going to be a robot and be programmed a certain way so that you're consistently delivering the same exact um, circumstance to not be nervous for example or to play exactly the same we're all human and that's why i was very intrigued to find out about living a classical life through uh jan vogler actually he was very proud of his episode he he was very proud of uh his interview with you and happy with it and he sent it over to me and i was like wait a minute living the classical life what an interesting um series and then i saw my old teacher mono axis on it and i was like wow why did i not know about this before so it, it was definitely uh, an honor to be in touch with you through Instagram and uh, coming onto your Q&A. But I know we talk about a lot of interesting topics, but I have to go chronologically just oh, because yeah. I'm curious. And uh, yeah, that's just curiosity. So sometime in Cleveland, while you were staying with Bobby on, walk me through how you started living a classical life, because I believe that was around the same time, no? Or, I mean, yes. Well, yeah. it was kind of towards the end of my time there as a student. And and I it was mm. actually entirely related to just not knowing what comes next after you graduate. Because mm. I had this fantastic training there, very, very intense. And I was in love with learning new pieces. I, I loved <laughs> the process of being a student. I was just a totally big nerd. I, I actually loved music history and I loved writing my essays. And I loved... <laughs> The lessons made me so nervous because I was unsure if I was going to get killed that week. By, by Oh, you were by, the ultimate music conservatory nerd. I felt that way with uh, philosophy studies. And I, I loved writing the essays and arguing uh, and making 
yeah, uh, all the weird arguments about existence or anyway, yeah, that you're the ultimate nerd. It's like people people think about being a student as being a bubble, but don't you think that that's just one of the best bubbles there is? I mean, you're surrounded by your friends who are just as passionate about music and they're all pursuing something very similar. And you're, you know, you have practice buddies. That works really well. That's so cute. Practice buddies. Practice buddies. Yeah, I think you had like the best time. uh, I mean, I never went to conservatory full time. So I I always liked being a, I liked being outside a bubble of the of the musical nerd. I, like I felt like there were so many other things that I want to learn about and uh, question myself and the world about. So I actually didn't really participate in the bubble. I was like, like rebelling against that. So yeah. we come from different um, experiences, but still, um, that's great that you had such a great time. That's great that you had well, such a great it, time. My vocabulary is just horrible. Well, <laughs> you know. I, I feel like it, it was good because that was also kind of a good counterpoint to my personality, which I, I was always feeling myself very much the shy outsider. So I didn't, you know, hmm. that was my way to feel like I was part of a community. I, I miss a lot of aspects of being a student and just the regular <laughs> deadlines. Um, oh, wow. And, and um, well, deadlines in a good way, because now now you get a concert and it's six months away and you say, OK, well, that's a really big piece. You know, I, I hope I'm actually going to start learning it now. Oh, wow. I never thought of that as a deadline. I never thought of concert dates as a deadline. Like that, like one experiences with essay deadlines. I never thought of the comparison as a deadline. Well, I never, yeah, I suppose in one way, I never really thought of it as a deadline, but there's always the, I hope it's good by then. Because um, one -hmm. example, I remember I had to learn the Tchaikovsky first piano concerto very, very quickly. Um, There were a lot of projects and I was only able to start it from scratch three weeks from, from curtain time, um, mm. which is not a lot of time to learn something so difficult as Tchaikovsky. You first. must have had, you must have really big hands and also really fast and very good technique for the octaves. Well, I, medium hands and um, the, as for good technique, I don't know, I've, I've been sort of battling a lifetime of, of trying to let go of physical tension, um, but I learned it. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the notes were more or less there, but I felt like in, in retrospect, when I listened back to the, the recording, always, always a humbling experience that I felt like, you know, it could have used more time to breathe and just have mm. more, more time to have the phrases feel like they had a reason to be like a certain inevitability that, um, that can mm-hmm. only come with the passing of time, I think. And that's one of the beautiful things about uh, getting older let's hope that if we can retain all of our physical capacities then hopefully the lives that we've lived can add to our musical experiences i i I hope you sound incredibly mature and very wise (laughs) well for example i i'm going to be learning the dvorak piano concerto for a performance that uh, well everything's kind of messed up because of covid right now but um it's it's some ways off in the future but i recently read that sviatoslav richter took two years to learn that piece and he was one of the fastest learners that i've read about um mm-hmm. so if it took yeah. him so it took him six months for the bartok second piano concerto which is that's that's another amazingly difficult one but he got that in six months the dvorak piano concerto took him two years so i said well who do I think I am, you know, to try to do it in less? <laughs> so I better start practicing. Well, I actually don't know the piano concerto. Uh, I, I did no not one know does. the concerto. No, no one does. But actually, Richter loved it so much that he he made his London debut in 1961 with the Dvorak piano concerto. Can you believe it? Um, mm. He also recorded it with Carlos Kleiber as the conductor. So it's like this amazing, amazing recording. I highly recommend wow. that one to anyone who doesn't know the piece. Um, I'm totally in love with this piece. Absolutely. I will definitely include that in our in our curated playlist. Yeah, but we yeah. keep getting it off we, off track. Yeah, yeah. Well, me and my, <laughs> my Midwestern mouth, I'm always taking on on tangents, and I. But I love it. I learned so many other uh, moments of your life and your interest. So it's it's great. <laughs> I don't I don't mind it. <laughs> I I recent by the way, speaking of Manny Axe, uh, who, for for anyone tuned in right now. Um, he, he was on living the classical life and, and that was just an amazing experience to be able to converse with him because 
he's just the most wonderful human being and modest and kind of he's he's he has a more sort of soft-spoken nature i recently about a month ago heard him in live recital in akron ohio so south of oh yeah Florida. i saw that on instagram how was that experience it was amazing because we've we've obviously missed about a year of going to concerts yeah and i didn't really realize how much i missed it until suddenly i heard him play in the room in the acoustic mm. and it was so wonderful it was so mm. wonderful and and you know afterwards he wrote to me and and said oh that wasn't my best playing but that i think that was entirely beside the point because the audience we were all so grateful for what we were hearing i was getting goosebumps the whole concert there was there was something mm. kind of cathartic about it there yeah was no i can imagine yeah there, there was no intermission because they didn't want people sort of shuffling in and out of the hall but afterwards in the yeah. lobby i saw a lot of people were just they looked kind of breathless they were hanging on to something and not speaking and it, mm. it was they had been totally overwhelmed by the experience of hearing music and it I, i'm not going to be so uh, brash as to say that this pandemic was a good thing but in a way for me if i can speak for myself it kind of took a year of not having live concerts for me to realize how special it is. Yeah, I mean, I think you're not alone in that because even just normal in-person interactions, it's uh, suddenly so much more special and, and uh, yeah. So it definitely is a, going to be strange to experience a live concert again for myself. I was actually looking forward to listening to him play in Dresden, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. So yeah. um, anyway, happened. he was one of your first guests or one of your earlier guests, yeah, he, no? He was one of the earlier guests for sure. And, so uh, how did living the classical life start? I think I've right. tried to I, ask I, this yeah, a few times, but we keep talking about other things. <laughs> so that's right. So I graduated from Cleveland in 07 and Oh, not that long ago. Yeah. Oh, seven. Thank, just, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for putting it that way. Cause I, I, I feel like I'm, you know, time is passing quickly and I'm getting old, but um, I'm glad that you think that that's not long ago. One, one thing that I was always fascinated by towards the end, especially towards the end of my studies there, I was always asking my peers about practicing, how they would practice mm -hmm. things, how they would learn and memorize. Cause I just wanted to get better at it. And I didn't feel like my ways were particularly e efficient. So, and this was something that I probably should have done earlier because I would get a lot of really cool insights from my friends. Um, but I started asking questions and uh, more and more questions. And, and then I started asking people as I got closer to graduation time and I was freaking out. It's like, what, what do you do for concerts? You know, how, how do you go from graduation to having a career if, if you want to be performing? Mm -hmm. and so I'd, I would ask people how they would walk that path. And, and uh, the one thing I learned, which was not really an answer to my question, was that there's no one one particular path. Mm -hmm. But this coincided with a period where I thought, okay, well, I should probably have a website if I want you know <laughs> people to you know have some indication of where I'm playing. You're um, very fancy. Oh, seven website. Oh, seven website. Yeah, back then that was like really. <laughs> You know, people were not having like a personal Facebook page, and and, re and recently people were telling me that Facebook is kind of like yesterday's news. Like people people don't really pay yeah. attention to Facebook anymore. And of course, the you're 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 the person who understands social media better than I do. So the reach there is actually pretty limited. Um, unless... Yeah, it, well, it became a thing for businesses, and they prioritize businesses in their algorithms and their structures. So yeah, it's now the old people's social media rather than the the yeah. hip. <laughs> social media but social I, I'm not even part of the hip because the hip is TikTok so that, that's, that's not my right. thing, yeah, that, that's <laughs> the new thing. so I, I was putting together the website and some friends of mine said well why don't we film like an, a little short introductory clip about you sort of introducing yourself on camera maybe playing a little bit just kind of showing mm. a three to five minute video of your world for anyone who doesn't know you which is like most people your, your um, friend is so innovative because no one talks to the camera right exactly and so we started we had this camera crew uh come to cleveland and i was so awkward i was so nervous i didn't know what i was supposed to you know kind of show about myself you know i all i know how to be is just myself i, I don't know how to demonstrate who i'm supposed to be um mm. 
So I did that and it, it really wasn't working in that way. But then I was saying, okay, let's have me interact with my musical friends and colleagues. And so I would sit down and talk with them. But growing up as kind of an interview junkie, and I, and I actually hate that word because it feels so one-sided, but growing up as an interview junkie, like um, Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR, um, the Charlie Rose show back when that was a thing. Um, mm. And uh, even kind of the, the things that people tend to poo-poo, like Oprah, I loved Oprah. Um, <laughs> but there was, now there was, I understand the, the itch to become a host. In yeah. a way, it's similar to to me, not to compare at all, because again, such different levels. But I have always enjoyed watching late night show interviews. Yeah, How for they some years now, I find it very fascinating, and sometimes they are funny, but in a classy way, and also in a very intelligent way. And I kind of enjoyed uh, those interviews a lot as a downtime thing that I did uh, aside from practicing and reading and studying. So. Well, it's a way to learn to connect with people, which as musicians, we're always trying mm. to do with our audience in various means. But maybe in a way for me, now that I'm thinking about this, um, learning to express my curiosity for the person in front of me became, y yes, it was there, but m maybe it was my way to compensate for the shyness that I, I was an extremely shy person um, mm. for a long, long time in my life. In some ways, still, maybe, maybe that accounts for some of the nerves that I have on stage. But... Mm point of all of that, and before I stray too much from the subject again, the the cameraman said, you know, Joel, it kind of looks like you're interviewing people. Why don't we recut the existing material as such and see, see if we could kind of make, this might work better as a show. So the first four episodes of the show were re released as such, and it had a different name. It was, they, they called it Jolt Bognar and Friends, because it was supposed to be about me, and I, and I hated mm. that title, because I said, well, if it's supposed to introduce me, well, no one has heard of me, so how would they search for that name if they didn't know my name? <laughs> so mm. we rebranded it, Living the Classical Life, and then it took a while to get going, but I had the advantage of knowing a few musical friends who were a little bit more prominent. So my upstairs neighbor was Daniel Trifonov, who was studying with the same teacher. Mm. And at the same time, I asked Stephen Huff to do it. And he had been my friend for a number of years. Mm. And um, around that time, one of our producers wrote to Yu Jawang and and um, said, would, would you consider being on the show? And she wrote back and she says, oh, yeah, I watched Danielle's episode. And, and I really loved that. You know, I, yeah, I would love to do that. So these three pianists sort of came on all at the same time. And now it, it makes sense. It all makes sense because from the outside perspective, it's just like, oh, how, how did you get connected to all of these uh, amazing artists? And now it's all kind of part of your inner circle. Yeah. And, and one thing that I, I sidetracked side myself in the beginning of our conversation was that there's this perception that this has been all about big names and a sort of a parade of famous people. But that was never really the idea. At at the beginning, we tried to focus on some bigger names to sort of raise the stature of the show and excite some donors, hopefully, which, I mean, there's really not a lot of money involved in in such a niche <laughs> conversation show. <laughs> but that's what we were aiming for. And then a lot of people started getting involved. And then the first time that we had someone write to us wanting to be on the show was uh, Joshua Bell. And mm -hmm. that, that was just such an exciting moment for me uh, back yeah. in 2014. And so we did that. And um, it, it keeps growing. But uh, again, the guests are decided by a team, and I was telling you earlier, you'd, you'd be surprised at this point how many guests um, say no or don't respond, and, and that's okay. Being being this open verbally is, is not everybody's thing, but I've always been curious to connect with people on that level, which is why I so appreciate the content that you come up with, because you find so many different ways to connect with people mm -hmm. and make yourself accessible to um, I think people of, of, of all ages, I mean, you, you post something in, and in five minutes, there are like 10 billion likes on it. I don't, I don't know how you do it. I don't think that's definitely not true, but, uh, I, I just had an interview actually with musical America and uh, they were asking me about how I do my social media and how I interact with my audience. And honestly, there's not a strategy or it's not like I am some mastermind, like, oh, I do this so that I get this from this person and from these people it's it's not so evil genius kind of <laughs> mindset it's just I think of my audience as people in my life like friends of course friends can mean so many different levels and you can have close friends and not so close friends but 
that's kind of how I always think of it. If I have something interesting to share, that I and I want to tell my friends, so I post about that. Or maybe I have a little struggle here, and then I would tell my friends about it. So why not post about it? So it's not so much of a complicated process, but that's still nothing、um, compared to how you are able to get all these、um, well, high-profile artists open up. That that takes a definite skill that I very well, much admire. You you said well, thank you so much. I think you said you said a word there that has been, in a way, I think my key to connect with everyone, which was struggle, because we we all have whatever it is our own personal struggle, whether it's in in life in general or during a given practice session on a particular、mm-hmm. day,、uh, whatever we're happening to to work with.、Um, I, I feel like that's that's always there, there's always something, and that that doesn't always have to be a bad thing, but. The point is, we we can all connect with that, and I think, for for me, having grown up and idolized all those great musicians,、uh, putting them on a pedestal didn't necessarily help me understand what was really involved with、um, navigating that musical life. So, I try、mm-hmm. in a way to humanize kind of the legends, demystify、yeah. the things that they have to go through, because most of the almost all of them go through the same struggles、um, that we, yeah,、remind. especially nerves. Which- by the way, almost all of them. <laughs> Exactly. Do you have one piece of advice that you could give from your own struggles with nerves? Because this is such a common question, and I'm sure our listeners can learn from you as well. Um, you know, I'll probably come at this answer from a strange angle, which is that I, being really uptight about wanting to be excellent in whatever I try to achieve, I think literally. I, I forget to draw the distinction between emotional intensity, emotional tension,、uh, distinguishing that from physical tension. You know,、mm. for me that was always too closely connected. So what I've been learning, even into my thirties,、um, to actually start everything with a breath, just breathing.、Mm. Um, literally, you know, singers they they have to obviously breathe before a phrase, but I. Before I start a musical phrase on the piano, I just remind myself to just breathe. I think that lets go of a lot of tension just through that simple. I, I know that's so sounds, simple, but I could imagine it effective. Yeah, I think if if I could summarize what I've learned from from all the guests that I've、uh, conversed with on the show, I think that I'll just say try to be try to be okay with yourself, just as a human being. Try to be kind with yourself and patient with your long term goals and. And to trust your instinct that there are so many different ways to reach your dreams. Wow, that would have been such a wonderful ending point. But I also would like to ask about your musical choices for our playlist for our listeners, because、um, yeah, I am very curious about your choice. But also, before I forget,、yeah. I just really appreciate how living a classical life—the things you said about what you try to do, humanizing—it's so similar to what. I try to do on my platform, so、um, yeah, I just wanted to put it out there. When I found out about、uh, your show through Jan and reading that, it was like a whoa, our our worlds collide. I could see that, and now, so a few years well, later, or not that few years, a year later, now I get to <laughs> talk to you. So, <laughs> well, it's just it's so much fun for me, and I I really hope that we can have you on the show soon because、um, what's what's always Aside from all the the clear talking points about how you make use of all the resources that are available to a musician today, I think what's really fascinating to me about you in our conversations is you you put a lot of questions to me. I mean, you did that during. Oh、our、yeah,、When、but that's the- because I'm curious. <laughs> well, that's that's just so wonderful. That makes my life so much、uh, easier. But、um, you know, I just I love conversation. I. I, I just can't stop talking and and being curious about, <laughs> about people. I don't know. If that's a good. I know I could talk to you for hours, but I, I don't want to keep you for too long. So, so, so let me choices.、Yeah. Talk about the yeah your choices. I know you already mentioned that you have a strong love for Russian music, so it's、mm-hmm. not a surprise that it is on your list of choices. So walk me、yeah. through. So basically, what we see here with the with the musical examples are. Uh, really, instances of music that I heard 
for the first time, and I was just set on fire. Um, the first one here was Tchaikovsky's second piano concerto. It's getting more airtime mm. these days, but at the time that I heard it in the 90s, and I was in high school, I heard this. I didn't even know it existed. And there was this old LP of Emil Gilel's with Kondrashen. It was this, you know, just these, it required a record player. Who, who even knows what that is uh, <laughs> among a certain generation? Well, vinyl is coming back. But I they heard are. I couldn't breathe. I was so, I was thunderstruck. That's how I would put it. I was thunderstruck. Mm. The passion of this and his, his thunderous virtuosity that also had immense poetic drama. It was so operatic. I said, mm. I didn't know if music could do this. Then I looked at the score and saw that the, the first movement has three cadenzas. The third of them is five minutes long. And at one point, it, it grows to this terrific climax, which I think is the only instance of music that I have ever seen, um, where there's an octuple fortis, fortissimo. And he writes a little star in, wow. in his manuscript that says, star, it go, goes down even louder than that, he says. <laughs> wow. Um, I think maybe Ligeti had, had some extreme dynamics, but... I'm the, sure the contemporary composers have, but... Coming from Tchaikovsky, I mean, I think that um, shows a, perhaps a little bit of humor, but also just the um, passionate, wow, I've actually never seen that in a score. So I'm definitely very interested in listening to this recording. Also, I can definitely imagine how Gillis would be, is that how you say his name? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was interesting. His, his manager, uh, Saul Hirok, always called him Gillis, uh, but it was mm. Gillis. Uh, Gillis. Yeah, Hillel. Yeah. Was, was anyway, yeah, I can definitely imagine how he has or had that exact uh, drama necessary for a piece like that, because I remember when I was in college, I was obsessed with his scent song uh, concerto recording. Oh, that's and just the, the second concerto, right? Yeah. Oh, oh just it, the deep bass and just the way he approached the piano with those chords it's just uh it's like the has, entire church is ringing kind of yeah he has this big bronze sound as though he's like activating some humongous cathedral bell exactly yeah this this illuminating incandescent quality that he had there's a really uplifting experience of listening to him play so and and, and your listeners will get that in this tchaikovsky concerto i hope because i i literally uh, could almost not sleep for three nights after I heard this piece. Wow. And I went back to it and I listened and listened over and over. There was this tiny music listening room and eventually the librarian in the in my high school said, could you cut it out? And I said, but why? This is a listening room. <laughs> this is awesome. And he just rolled his eyes and he was really upset, but there it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then eventually I bought that LP. It's I'll never forget that. It's It's really piano playing at its most inspired. Mm, well, definitely. I'm glad it's on your playlist. So after that, you've got Schubert? Yeah, it's it's a very short song. I heard this also in high school. Maybe that's a key. In high school, you find everything exciting because life is just opening up to you. It's like, whoa, the possibilities, <laughs> all the flavors of life. Well, exactly. a friend of mine played me this very recording um, of a Schubert song um, called Nacht und Traum. Träume, yes. Traum. And yes. <laughs> And it was sung by Gerard Suzet, who was somewhat in uh, Fischer Disca's shadow. Fischer Disca was kind of the, the titanic figure in, in, in art song, but Suzet was no less of an artist and, and he had an immensely beautiful voice. And when I heard this recording, I was frozen. I couldn't breathe. I, was, I felt like time stood still. How he sustained this note it has a real wow factor. And, and maybe that's mm -hmm. all I have to say about it. But this started off a lifelong love of Schubert for me. Mm, yeah, because I think you also did a uh, recording, right? Mm -hmm. of on, Schubert. My, on my first and, and actually only album to date um, was was Schubert and Liszt. And um, I think there's that that songful quality that I always try to emulate on the piano. You truly are a, a romantic and the you have such sensitive and strong reactions to music that I myself have not had that well yes and no but I don't think to the extent that you have which is very inspiring and very interesting but well, before I, I've, I've never yeah. understood if that this was not just some manic reaction but 
Um, for, for me, when, when I feel like I'm set on fire, I'm really set on fire. The, the next example, and I, I don't know if there's a convenient way for your, for your listeners to sort of access this file, but it's, it's a recording by the Swiss pianist Albert Ferber, who very few people would have heard his name today, but he... I don't think I heard of him before, actually. Yeah, he, he was friends with Rachmaninoff, played for Rachmaninoff many times, and I've chosen the, the lesser-known first piano sonata, which is this massive thing with, without any cuts. It's, it's very nearly 50 minutes long. It's a massive mm -hmm. sonata. And with, with all the other recordings that I had heard up to that date, the piece didn't make any sense to me, and, and I'm not putting down those other pianists, but when I heard this recording, I was transfixed in the same way. Um, he worked on this piece with Rachmaninoff, and I think you can hear that in the recording. It's absolutely magical, and you get all these aspects of the Russian soul there, these, these magnificent open spaces. You'll get the orthodox chorale harmonies, you'll get the bells, you'll get the dies irae, which haunted his pieces throughout his whole life. You'll mm. get the quicksilver demonic kind of character that was the scherzando thing that he had all throughout his music, and then the third concerto, for example. Um, this piece is a lifetime of, of human experience. And I wow. really hope that people can find a way to, to locate this on YouTube and yes. to have listen. It takes a lot of patience to get through it. Cause I say it's, it's a massive piece. It's got dense textures, but it's got all of the characters there. I'm definitely ready to commit to 50 minutes of, after just hearing how passionate you are about this recording and just the way you talk about the piece and the music, it's uh, definitely, very motivating for me to go listen. So it will definitely be linked in the podcast and the YouTube link will be in the description. So I hope everyone goes to listen. Tiffany, thank you so much for having me on this conversation. I've, I've enjoyed it really immensely. Thank you. Yeah. And I thank you for everything that you, you do. Oh, you're so nice. Thank you. Good luck with your uh, series because you, you're not just the host of classical, the thing in classical life, but you're also playing concerts and then you have uh, too serious that you have to manage. Yeah, manage, manage a concert series. I help out with Piano Fest in the Hamptons, and it's uh, a lot of different hats that I wear, and I just crazy to have it all together. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure you have it all together. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Tiffany, and thank you, everyone, for, for tuning in and listening. It's great to be here. I could talk to him for hours. <laughs> anyway, I hope you enjoyed our conversation. It was just so inspiring to hear how passionate he speaks about music and about these recordings that he suggested and curated for us. So please check out the playlist. It will be linked in the appropriate places, whether it's in the description of the YouTube, if you're watching this on YouTube, or in the description of the podcast. If you would like to know more about Together's Classical's charity efforts, please go check out our website, www.togetherwithclassical.org, and follow our social media to be updated on our current fundraising. I look forward to the next conversation.